This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author and former human rights lawyer Michelin Lee. Michelin joined me to talk about the issues raised in her quarterly essay, Lifeboat, Disability, Humanity and the NDIS. Micheline explains that the National Disability Insurance Scheme, for all its good intentions, has not understood people with disabilities well enough. And while government thought the market could do its job, a caring society cannot be outsourced. Micheline explains where the NDIS needs to improve and also what needs to happen for society to be truly inclusive. We are about to delve into an in-depth conversation with Micheline Lee, who has just released a quarterly essay called Lifeboat, Disability, Humanity and the NDIS. And Micheline is joining me to talk really in-depth about the issues that come up in the quarterly essay. Um, And Micheline, for background, uh, is a novelist and she wrote an excellent novel called The Healing Party, which was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. And uh, Micheline was born in Malaysia uh, and migrated to Australia when she was eight. She has lived with a motor neurone disability from birth. Um, and as you will hear, um, so have her siblings. And she's also a former human rights lawyer and painter which is a wonderful combination, a really a multi-talented person. And Michelin is joining us, as I said, to talk about her quarterly essay, which is out through Black Ink. And uh, I think what I found really resonated when I was reading this um, quarterly essay was, you know, the idea or the ideals of the NDIS are very lofty and very important and very critical to the lives of people with with a disability. Uh, but unfortunately, the reality isn't what was planned and it has really become something of a massive stress for people who are trying to get onto the NDIS for people who have plans on the NDIS and having their funding changed or, um, I guess, undermined or questioned. And also for those who are having to use providers, maybe they're being exploited, being charged higher rates, not being able to access services. Um, There's so many different issues in terms of um, participants and the way that they interact with the NDIS, let alone the fact that the government has been banging on about the cost of the NDIS, which seems to be the only thing you hear about in the media is what it's costing us instead of actually um, what we need to do to enhance it, to make it actually do what it was set out to do. So I'm really excited that um, Michelin is going to be joining us now to talk about these issues from a first-hand perspective and also to say, I guess, uh, something which comes up in the blurb for this, which is that um, while the government thought market could do its job, a caring society cannot be outsourced. And I think that's such an important message for almost everything in life. So I welcome onto the program Michelin Lee. Hi there, Michelin, and thank you very much for joining us today. 
Thank you, Amy. Thank you for the very generous introduction. And that was a, a great summary of the essay. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And um, I, yeah, this it's, it's so upsetting to read the experiences of people at the moment um, on the NDIS because obviously it, it's providing something that's very important and we'll get to what it is providing people if, if people aren't familiar with the NDIS. But there's so many experiences of just a kind of bureaucratic minefield, a nightmare uh, that doesn't need to be this way and it's set up like that almost it feels as a disincentive to engage with it, um, you know, which also shouldn't be the case. Uh, but it seems that, as you say in this quarterly essay, society is constantly putting up barriers uh, rather than removing them for people with a disability. And that is a systemic problem that the NDIS has not solved. In fact, it's only kind of embedded uh, this kind of issue about around accessibility. So, uh, Michelin, would you be able to tell us a bit about the NDIS? And I'm going to preface this by saying that we have covered it in depth with Luke Enrique Gomez from The Guardian in a kind of policy sense, but many of those listening may not have heard him speak about it. So, from your perspective, uh, you know, as someone who has from a dis, um, from birth lived with a disability and needed uh, different types of personal support, what did the NDIS replace and what, from your perspective, was it meant to achieve? Okay, so um, the NDIS represented transformational um, change, really. It was um, an amazing achievement and it was um, a great reflection on Australian society that that they were um, backing this huge change to give people with disabilities a fairer go and to be more inclusive and to actually um, create this huge national institution and put the funding behind it. Um, and so it is really disappointing pointing now that it hasn't worked out um, as it was intended, but there is still hope because we're learning from the mistakes and there's this NDIS review that is occurring. Um, and I guess you could see the last, the first 10 years of the NDIS as the stage one and that we can actually go um, after this review and, and keep on improving the NDIS. But to go back to your question about the um, what the NDIS, I, sh I guess I should start about what the NDIS is. Um, prior to the NDIS, um, people who needed disability support services, um, and by disability supports, I mean um, where you need just the physical assistance to... Um, get dressed, showered, get out of bed, or it might be um, you might have a cognitive disability and you need the assistance of someone there um, just prompting you and helping you um, to, to navigate decisions in life and to accompany you out into the community. So there's the personal support worker um, assistance, and then there's also the disability equipment 
that we might need. It might be um, wheelchairs or um, um, respiratory um, machines or it might be hearing aids or um, other disability implements. Um, and so my... Um, so the, and it's also um, having appropriate housing uh, for people with disabilities. And prior to the NDIS, um, states were providing services, um, but they were um, inadequately funded and quite ad hoc. And a lot of people were not receiving enough services and um, and were not having enough choice and control about how they use the services. So, for instance, um, you couldn't choose um, if you needed um, intensive assistance. You often had to go into group homes and you couldn't choose who you um, lived with. Um, and so in my situation, I have a progressive disability and I increasingly needed more supports, but um, the way disability supports were funded, it was just in an arbitrary way where there was just um, a, a bucket of money there and it wouldn't actually respond to people's needs. Um, so there were long waiting lists for supports and, um, and some of the most urgent situations you'd get supports, but, but even then it wasn't always consistent. Um, and um, so now the um, so the NDIS um, was had the goal of addressing that so that it's supposed to respond to needs to people's actual needs um, and um, and to give more choice and control um, rather than what was called block funding. So there was block funding um, by state governments to disability support agencies and these agencies um, would then make the decisions about how they would provide the services and to whom um, and to provide more choice um, the decision was made to um, change it to individualised funding where the individuals with disabilities received individual funding packages and um, would be able as consumers to exercise cho choice and control because they would be buying um, support themselves. Um, and so what's happened is, is that for people who um, can be the idealised consumers, that system has worked quite well. Um, there's a lot of, of managing your own funds, sourcing your own supports, training the workers. So it, it actually is quite um, onerous, but, but if you have the cognitive ability or if you have an advocate who can manage it for you, then it, it does provide some choice and control. But for those people who haven't got that ability or um, or advocates to do it for them um, through this market system, um, they've missed out or even um, um, ended up in a worse situation. Um, and 
the market system was set up with some market stewardship, um, such as some support coordinators who are supposed to assist people in how to spend um, the money and, and to, to um, attract the support workers. But the support coordinators themselves, um, there's a, a vast um, range of experience and that often hasn't worked very well for a lot of of people um, and supports have been privatised mm. um, and with that privatisation of services, services were supposed to um, become more competitive and more innovative. That was the theory but the reality is that um, the markets um, that we, we're experiencing, thin markets, um, particularly for people living in remote and regional areas and for people who have specialised needs or for people who support providers find are, um, for people who support providers might see as difficult. So support has flown where profits are more easily made, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and that's you know, the behaviour of a market, isn't it, to try and find the easiest solution or the easiest money rather than to provide for everyone to make sure that there's equity in terms of access. Uh, and that's something that governments are supposed to do, but you can't, as we as we well know, leave it up to the markets to decide where resourcing goes because it often does fall in such a disproportionate way. Um, you made me think about some of the providers that I'm aware of that people access, including, uh, for example, physiotherapy and occupational therapy. Uh, they, I've noticed, or a lot of them at least, have different rates for NDIS participants. And a lot of them seem to charge much above the rate that non-NDIS participants have. And uh, some of the rationale, it seems to be, is that there is a greater administrative burden uh, on the the provider uh, and that's why they charge extra is so that they can kind of make up um, the, the time that they spend or the resources that they spend, you know, through that extra, I guess, gap. But I wondered if you had observed that yourself, that there seems to be, I guess, a different um, a different rate and, and like, an, uh, I don't know, in some cases potentially people being overcharged who are on the NDIS um, and then obviously having their plans greatly reduced when they're, um, you know, using up funds faster. Uh, yes. Um, so the NDIA, that's the body that administers the NDIS um, has set caps or, or maximum rates um, for support workers and for physios and occupational therapists, and often the the provider will just go straight to the the maximum rate. The maximum rates mm. are there for um, instances where more, a bit more complexity is involved, or specialisations involved, or um, or extra administrative burdens, but unfortunately, people we are finding that providers are going straight to the maximum, even 
when it's not necessarily justified. Um, and um, and um, with um, my own support workers, I don't go to the, the maximum um, rates, but that does make it more difficult for me um, to source support workers. And it, it is also a, um, a more complex situation where, you know, you do want to reward your support workers, but I'm trying to um, do the right thing and actually um, um, match the complexity to the mm. to the rate. Um, yeah, but it, it, it does make it difficult. And um, in we're finding that um, in that support workers. So, for instance, I go um, on. I source a lot of my support workers through apps, um, and a lot of the providers there show a preference for people um, for taking people out on community access, um, like um, shopping or. Um, or to the footy or to a movie, um, and the support that I need is very much um, the actual help to get out of bed and showering and um, and help helping me get ready for the day. And I find that there's actually um, less what providers to choose from because, um, yeah, big because there is a shortage of, of support providers as well. And a lot of um, inexperienced um, people have come on to these apps and, and they charge the maximum rate for doing this um, community access. And and in, in some cases, of course, it's it's warranted, but, um, but we do need to find um, um, that matching of complexity and, um, and, and the salary. And I think that's one of the things that that the review will look at. Um, and I, I guess we're talking about um, costs and and, um, and providers taking advantage of the system and there's been a lot of talk about fraud, but I, I think that's actually a, a smaller um, problem in, in the scheme of things. Um, one of the main issues I see with NDIS is that it's not actually helping to achieve at this stage greater participation. Mm. So there are many people um, who are on the NDIS who say that the NDIS has been life-changing. And for me, it has in, in some ways as well, and, and we're very grateful for that um, because now, for instance, I, um, I'm able to have enough support worker that I can stay in my home um, I might not have been able um, to do that. I might have been compelled to to live in a more kind of group situation um, and have less choice of where I live and um, with whom I live. Um, but because of the NDIS, I have this more individualised service and I, I can have support workers and I um, manage them. I mean, it takes up a lot of my time navigating the NDIS, but... But it, it does mean that that I'm able to live in the way um, that I want to at home. But it's not necessarily translating into great participation, and um, that's what I wanted to talk about 
the need for, for more structural supports. And in a way, the NDIS itself was, was supposed to represent structural change. And by structural change, I mean where society is actually set up in a way where um, it just embraces that the fact that, that people are diverse and that people have disabilities and that we all um, have vulnerabilities as well and, and that that um, we all have dependencies, we're interdependent. I mean, the way society is, is set up, it's actually set up for a very narrow conception of, of ability um, yeah. and disability needs to be seen as part of the normal variation of life and that the measures to make society more inclusive um, should also be seen as normal because it is normal as, and be should be seen as normal and expected rather than seen as a burden so that we don't have to fight for each um, for each entry we get or piece, or piece of access to jobs or education or whatever, which is the situation right now. We're still having to fight um, not to be shut out um, from participating in society. And and so it, it's about the structural changes in, the in, in society and in our environments. You know, the physical access is the most most obvious, but it's also about how institutions like our legal institutions are run, how education needs to be more neurodiverse. And disability support is part of that structural change, just that recognition that that there are people who, in order to participate in society, need that individual support as well. Um, and the aim of the NDIS was that it would be a collective responsibility and that we wouldn't have to fight for it every um, step of the way. Um, and um, so, and the whole goal was for people with disabilities to be able to participate because if you actually look at all the statistics on the rate of participation um, in jobs, in an employment, um, in, um, you know, in, in leadership, um, they're very low and, and, in fact, for as a country as wealthy as Australia is, um, the comparison with other OECD um, countries is, is, um, is very low as, as well. And so with the, the NDIS has had a very individual focus um, and hasn't focused on the the structural side enough, and um, and the, you know the obvious example and um, is um, that well, for me, I might be able to be um, dressed up, ready, ready to to get out there, um, but to actually you know get to my job, um, public transport. Um, is difficult. You know, there was, um, you know, for years and years we've been fighting for for better public transport and 20 years ago um, there was a commitment made under the Disability Discrimination Act that minimum standards for access would be met and um, that timeline expired a few months ago and, and those minimum standards weren't met. 
Um, and so in, in order to actually be able to get into jobs, into education, things like that, you need those, those broader changes as well. Yeah. And, and one thing um, that I haven't mentioned yet is mm. that, that this individualised um, focus of the NDIS has meant that if you get the individual funding package, you get supports um, and the people who don't qualify for individual funding packages were supposed to, to be able to get the supports through the community. So, um, um, you know, the kids with autism or learning um, delays were, were supposed to be able to get the, the supports they need through their, their education systems. Um, and But what's happened um, is that governments have actually slowly pleaded um, and local governments and private providers to, uh, or community organisations um, have slowly um, stopped funding um, these broader community services. Um, and so it's a situation now that if you're not on the NDIS, um, you're not getting anything. Mm. Um and and that's been part of the of the funding issue that that more and more people have been desperate um, to get on the NDIS. So we also had you know like hacks um, home and community care services that um, and local government services um, for people with disabilities where the disabilities um, weren't um, significant and um, enough in order to get an individual funding package, but they still need some supports, but but these have um, um, these have slowly died off over the 10 years of, of the, the AIS. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. yeah, the council services are greatly reduced and the waiting lists are huge uh, for services. I definitely know that for certain down in my area, it's gotten really difficult for anyone needing access to those community services. And I... I was also reflecting on what you said about, um, well, a number of things. The the thing that struck me first of all was also, I guess, that inherent vulnerability that you talk about that comes up multiple times. And I think that people don't understand, or or maybe they they don't want to understand or face the possibility that they could become unwell or disabled at any point in their life. And, you know, they might think now that they're, you know, fully able-bodied um, and, you know, that there's their whole life ahead of them and nothing's going to change and, you know, this is not an issue for me, it's got nothing to do with me. But really, as you say, essentially, you know, there's an ever-present possibility in our lives of injury or disability that, as you said, it's part of the normal variation of life, that it shouldn't be some kind of aberration that is seen as a, a difference, an impost, a um, abnormality. You know, these are kind of things that have been pushed onto people with disabilities, um, people with chronic illnesses, and as you said, you know, with the public transport issue, you know, it's it's seen as some kind of burden 
to change the way that things have been run for so-called able-bodied people um, so that we can be inclusive for everyone. And, you know, it's very, very obvious when you can't get onto a tram, um, you know, that there's a problem with public transport or, you know, the fact that you have to get onto a train at a particular carriage so that the train driver can put the um, the ramp on so that you can get onto the the train, you know, there's so many different things and extra hoops that people with a disability have to go through. And as you point out at the start of the essay, you know, you have to plan ahead if you're going on a trip. You know, you need to think about where the disabled toilets are along the route that you're going. You might not be able to access all of the shops because they don't have, um, you know, a ramp or an ability to get in if you're using a, a wheelchair. So, you know, these are the things that... I, you know, able-bodied, quote-unquote, people are taking for granted, I guess, that that people think, you know, this can't happen to me, this isn't relevant to me, um, you know, I don't need to worry about it. Whereas I think what I got from this essay as well was that, you know, this is an issue for all of society, for all of governments, for all people, because we are all affected either directly or indirectly and either right now or potentially into the future and that we shouldn't be seeing people with a disability as other. And, you know, this, uh, the, if we do see, see them as other, we end up leading to discrimination, to abuse, to, you know, the potential for violence, as we've seen with the domestic, um, sorry, the Disability Royal Commission. Could you take us through some of your thoughts on that particular line of reasoning that you that you had in the essay and, you know, your observations about the ways that um, people with a disability are currently, I guess, viewed by government, by society, um, and how they're, they're experiencing everyday life, not just through the NDIS, but in general? Yes. Um, yes, I really um, can understand um, how people do want to um, hide from or or um, or see as other um, vulnerability or and dependency because for many years I've I've done that myself and um, writing this essay um, was really difficult um, for me um, because I've had to um, delve into my own um, vulnerability when um, the default um, for me um, and the way I've been able to, you know, become a lawyer um, and um, and work in um, a culture that and operate and um, and succeed in a culture where um, vulnerability often isn't accepted is by actually um, repressing that vulnerable side of my myself you know so um, so but as you said it is um, it's just a part of nature like we're born vulnerable as and we need care as um, when and then, People have accidents. Um, we have um, we have traumas that happen in life. We um, um, we have 
mental health days um, and we age and um, and that and yet um, we want to see that as um, um, other as as you mentioned um, and we really benefit from a more universal universally accessible society and a, a more caring and inclusive society everybody um, benefits um, and so I really did want to focus on cultural change in this essay because um, although it's not talked about uh, very much you know um, in the actual implementation of schemes um, it's what actually drives um, a lot of the reforms and and I feel like you need to keep on going back to um, understanding um, what disability it's about how people respond to it to make sure that we don't fall back into the the same ruts of operating of, of treating um, disability as um, something that you do to save the individual or as charity or, you know, you, you want to make sure that it's actually setting up society to be, to be more inclusive. And these market schemes is, um, you know, such a, um, you know, it, it, it just made me really angry, I have to say, the way um, it was it was set up and how people who were really vulnerable um, were harmed because of, of the market approach. Um, and it, it just makes me think, how? How did they think that um, employing this market approach where there's such a, a raft of evidence that it doesn't work in terms of social services. It doesn't work in, in lots of um, ways of society. But And, you know, after all the talk about all the goals that it just became when government came to and the um, implementers of the scheme um, came to it, they, they once again um, just went back to um, the old um, ways of doing things and employed this market approach where... Um, there's this denial of, of who people with disabilities actually are. And in order to provide choice and control, just um, conceiving us as, as, the, as the consumer, there's a denial once again about the people with cognitive um, disabilities um, who aren't able to um, to take that role without more support. So there, there seems to be there seem to be this binary. Either if all right, you want choice and control. Okay, here's this money. You go out and spend it and get your supports. Um, um, and so you either can, you know, you're either the idolised consumer, um, mm. and there's nothing in between. Mm. So. We do want self-determination for all people um, with disabilities and for the people with, with cognitive impairment. It's um, anybody who's struggling um, because of culture or background or context or whatever to be that ideal um, consumer. Um, we need. It's not about having capacity. Doesn't mean doing it on your own. 
um, it means having the, your context and your capacity actually um, and your level of capacity capacity accommodated so that if you um, need the support in order to exercise self-determination, that support is there. And so that, that was what um, was missing. And, um, and yeah, so in, I mean, the, the case that, that, um, that had really frightened a lot of people um, with disabilities, which was so um, hard to think about is, is um, Anne-Marie Smith in, in Adelaide, who, um, when she transferred over to the NDIS, um, wasn't given the supports um, that she needed in order. I mean, she was just the, the system to um, transfer over to the NDIS. It was just a phone call, um, although her previous state support provider, case manager, had said that she needs to have um, face-to-face um, assistance. Um, and in, in the end, um, Emery was... Um, criminally um, neglected by just one individual support worker who um, and Amri ended up um, dying from um, terrible malnutrition and um, and pressure sores and um, uh, and infections from being left on on a chair and, and not moved for for um, the, the police said for like uh, maybe over a, a year um, and she was just left at the mercy of, of one support worker and there was no no oversight um, and yeah and what should have happened was for her to have had that face-to-face support to have ha- um, had the support coordinator, um, assist her, and of course she needed to have more than one one support worker, um, rather than just be at the mercy of of one support provider. And yeah, so so we're we're finding this situation where where um, we really need um, more support set up, um, and that we need a, an NDIS that that can be that can respond to the. The different needs because people um, who are able to coordinate their supports, they still want to have the the freedom to do that. They don't want it to be as administratively complex to do it, but they still want to be able to um, navigate that. But then on, um, but then we also need more supports and more um, regulations and. Um, and oversights um, for for people who may need them. So we really need the NDIS needs to be nimble and and diverse. And and in many ways, the what has happened is the NDIS has replicated um, the um, the discrimination that occurs in society, where where it it isn't um, diverse enough to to um, be universal and and um, accommodate a, a broad range um, the reality actually the reality of of um, the diversity of, of life yeah I think that's the the really important point 
that you're making is that everyone's experience is not the same on the NDIS. And as you said, some people are having a really excellent experience and it might be because they, you know, aren't experiencing the challenges that others are. Um, They might have a particularly good support coordinator or lack local area coordinator or, you know, their plan hasn't been changed or, you know, all kinds of things might be going well for them. And then there are other people, as you say, who haven't had that experience, who are having a different experience, whether they be cognitively um, impaired or, or otherwise, and that needs to be accounted for, that everyone isn't having a universally positive experience and it doesn't mean that the NDIS has no value then or it doesn't have any worth. It just means that this independent review that's being conducted is even more important to ensure that there's consistency of standards, that there's consistency of experience and that the funds are being utilised in the best way for participants. And also, of course, as you say, um, that people are able to access the supports they need through the market system. And if the market system isn't working, that there is some alternative, that there isn't just a gap um, that's that's left. Uh, just to close out the conversation, Micheline, because I really valued hearing, you know, your personal experience and you opened the essay with a story about um, a, a trip that you made with your siblings and, you know, you were reflecting on, you know, the experiences that you had and the response that your brother had um, to, you know, I guess the same situation or the same interaction and that you had different kind of uh, responses, different views. And obviously, as you say, that um, accounts for the human spectrum of of different experiences and intellectual um kind of approaches and emotional experiences. Everyone's going to see things through a different lens potentially. Um, but as you said, you know, you you kind of have seen perhaps, I don't know, like I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm, I'm not going to. I just wanted to, I guess, get a sense from you reflecting on that first story that you share with us in the essay. Have you thought about it more and have you reflected on it further and you know because I think your response is just as valid as your brother's as well you know I was really it kind of it was very thought-provoking to me your interpretation of the interaction versus your brother because I don't know which side I would end up falling on it might be your side so I I don't know I just wanted to get a sense from you maybe you can explain it because I don't want to tell the story on your behalf but if you could I guess share with us your thoughts about the way that we, um, you know, perceive each other in our interactions, because it might help illuminate for those listening a way that they can be more aware and sensitive and um, caring and careful with the way that they interact with people who have a disability. So just to summarise that story, my brother, sister and I, the three of us use um, electric wheelchairs and um, we were taking my brother out to... um, my brother lives in state. We were taking out, him out to a tourist area and we had one support worker um, with us who was assisting the, the three of us and it was a kind of quaint village up in the um, the hills and we went and 
my brother wanted to go into one of the gift stores to buy something to take back to his to his wife, and we just um, rolled up and down the streets and and um, shop after shop after shop had steps, and and then and we finally found one shop which had a step to its main entry, but um, there was actually a courtyard at the back, and um, and there was no step there, so. Um, the three of us went there and and there were gifts and um, items for sale out in this courtyard and my brother found something and asked his support worker to take his credit card and, and pay for it inside because uh, there were steps to go inside and, and he couldn't do it himself. And, um, and the support worker did that and then the owner came out and, and he was... Um, he came out with, you know, great warmth and he um, said to my brother he wanted to give the item to him and my brother said, no, 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 I want to pay for it. And the owner was just saying, it's it's just great to see you out here getting out and about and and I really admire you. I want to give it to you, uh, yeah, because I don't know if you use the word inspirational, but he, he kept on talking about how he just admired um, us. And then he saw my, me and my sister, I have to admit that I was trying to hide because these situations <laughs> arose too often and embarrassed me. But um, And that then and I was thinking, do I say something about inspiration porn or, or do I um, just go along with it? And I decided, you know, he seems so nice and, and I just smiled and, and he went and got me a bar of soap and I was saying, no, don't give me anything. But he gave me and my sister a bar of soap and um, and then there were, it was quite crowded. Other people in the courtyard were all like like looking and listening on and all um, smiling and, and there was this like, you know, there was this feel like, isn't that lovely? People with disabilities out for the day and being given gifts, and but then, and that was the feeling I I got. And then we went out there, and um, I said something about how conflicted I felt and how we were, and I think I said something sarcastic about um, at least we were able to be somebody else's inspiration for the day. And and my brother um, then said I was being very cynical and. Um, and that at least we could get into that shop and at least that, that person reached out to us um, and and it was important that people reached out to us. And, and the interesting thing is that um, I've had a conversation with my brother um, since then because when I wrote that, I gave it to him and said, is it okay if, I, if this gets published? And um, he said that, yes, it all happened that way, but he... He did want me to put um, a, another view more strongly, um, and that's that um, he'd just been to America where um, there is a very um, – it's even more – it's very, very individualised there, and their access is, is um, better in, in some ways. Um, so he had a situation where the backrest on his electric wheelchair fell back and wouldn't go back up, and he – and his support worker wasn't strong enough to lift him back up into a um, so that he was sitting up rather than than laying laying flat on his back. And nobody would help. Nobody would help because they were 
afraid of liability. And then um, the hotel where they were staying, um, the hotel staff wouldn't help. And I think they tried, they, they just tried so many like fit looking men who um, looked like they would easily be able to to just lift that um, that backrest for him. Um, but they were all afraid of liability. And in the end, um, they had to call the, the ambulance to to get any assistance with the wheelchair. And so my brother was saying that that we want people to be charitable mm. and kind. And, and I was saying, well, I don't disagree with that. Yes, we do want people to be kind, but not not as charity. Kind because, you know, we're equal because they can empathise and it's all about being seen as as equal and not as other, being recognised, you know, on an individual level as equal and also at, at a structural and institutional level. And and I guess I feel that with that equality and that empathy that we're going to get both, you know, that, that there will um, be caring side as well because people um, can empathise as well. Yeah. yeah. No, it's that's, thank you for relaying that story and also telling us about the American experience because I'm, I'm, yeah, my mind is reeling at the idea that no one would step in and help. It's just. Yeah, and an ambulance had to yeah. come to assist for that, yes. Yeah. Horrifically, <laughs> I just, yeah, I can't understand it um, at all. Yeah, I'm glad that at least that isn't the experience um, in Australia for the most part. No, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think, Michelin, you've really summed it up so beautifully. I don't even want to <laughs> summarise what you've said because you've just said it perfectly in terms of, you know, being equal. There is that danger of infantilization, of othering, of, as, as you've said so well, you know, making people with a disability seem out of the ordinary or not part of, you know, society. But as we've just been talking about, there is all kinds of shades of experience, of ability, of capacity, of life experience, and disability is just one part of life and it certainly doesn't define people either. And as you've said, reflecting on your own experiences for this essay, you know, having to suppress your vulnerabilities or to not confront them that's something that society is placing on people with a disability and the expectation that that you have to fit into a neat box so I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm really appreciative that you've brought such a a different way of looking at things to people who might not have heard your perspective before in such depth and in such a thoughtful and articulate way and I'm really so grateful to you for writing this essay for taking the time but also you know, for going through that personal reflection, uh, which must have been challenging and, you know, putting it all down so eloquently on paper because we've all benefited so much from it. So thank you so much for the essay, but also for your time today, Michelin, because it's just been really, really illuminating. And also I think it's giving me more hope that the NDIS will improve because you've put so well the ways that it can be improved so that everyone has a consistent experience. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Amy. You've been great to talk with him. Thank you for your insights.
Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really, really grateful. And I hope that people do look for your quarterly essay, which is in hard copy. I'm holding it right now. Everyone can see through the medium of radio. It's called Lifeboat, Disability, Humanity and the NDIS. Quarterly essay, issue number 91. It's out right now and you can get it in bookstores, in newsagents, and, of course, I'm sure there's an ebook version as well. And it's absolutely essential reading. And I've just been talking with Michelin Lee, who is the author of this excellent quarterly essay. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.